Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colin Womongoin, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin but currently at home in Kildare due to the coronavirus. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, another round of negotiations in London on the future EU-UK relationship under the new format. We look at what's being achieved in these meetings and what the big stumbling blocks are. And we'll explain why if there's to be an October breakthrough, then it has to happen in July. And we'll find out why the UK Trade Secretary, Liz Truss, has been writing angry letters on the Brexit border policy and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we look at what role Brexit will play in the EU's €750 billion coronavirus recovery plan. But first, Tony, as we were saying earlier there in the intro, what has been achieved, if anything, in the talks during the week in London? Are we still in stalemate? At least it seems that way in terms of the public utterances by Michel Barnier yesterday. Yeah, it does seem that way. We've kind of get into a pattern now where you have rounds of negotiations followed by polite uh, but downbeat assessments of of what has happened uh, and those come from both uh, the EU and the UK chief negotiators. Remember this new format was effectively endorsed by Boris Johnson and the leaders of the EU institutions after that meeting on the 16th of July this July or June rather this so-called high level conference um, which was taking stock of where the negotiations had gone. So we'd we'd had four negotiating rounds before that with gaps in between, and they hadn't really delivered any breakthrough to speak of. So this new format is uh, much more intense. You've got smaller teams of negotiators meeting face-to-face because before they were doing this over video link. Uh, And there's more of uh, a scope for political intervention in this particular chapter of the negotiations so that if there are knots to be unpicked, then the political uh, oversight is there by both the, the the chief negotiators who can, you know, who have the license to move things forward. Um, but we've had two weeks of these so far and, you know, it doesn't seem that like that much uh, has been achieved. Um, you know, you do have... Uh, smaller teams of experts who are very familiar with the issues at hand and of course we can repeat them again it's the level playing field it's fisheries it's the uh, police and judicial cooperation and governance or in other words how do you resolve disputes between both sides in the future what role if any would the european court of justice have in a sense you know we you've had technical experts and officials on both sides going over this stuff since early March. And in some ways, they've kind of done all that uh, technical scoping and back and forth. Uh, And now it looks like, you know, a a political push is needed by both sides. Now, the impression I've been getting in Brussels, uh, and this is quite important, and it really, uh, this explains why, as we said in the intro there, uh, in July is extremely important. The The EU feel that they have made an important overture. Um, Michel Barnier has said publicly and privately that he understands the UK's red lines. Boris Johnson spelled them out in the uh, that high-level conference. In other words, no role for the ECJ in, in the UK, in the 
uh, either the level playing field or the state aid issue or police and judicial cooperation. Um, the fact that things have to feel and look different in in the realm of fisheries. In other words, you can't just replicate the common fisheries policy and keep the status quo with European fleets having all the quotas of fish that they currently get. Um, and Michel Barnier has said, you know, he understands this. He's listened yeah, what, carefully. What does that mean? He understands it. I mean, it's been said often enough for people to kind of hear what the other side has been saying. But in diplomatic speak, what's the subtle shift in saying that you understand it? Well, he's said it publicly for the first time after the last round of negotiations. But one, uh, he says, I've listened carefully and these are the red lines that the UK has and I I understand them. Uh, Now, he's never said that before. You speak to officials here in Brussels and they say uh, that he's said this also privately to member states. And the the real impression I'm getting is that this is now kind of starting to get purchase in Brussels and that member states are, I'd go as far as to say that they are mentally preparing themselves for a compromise on the European Court of Justice. They, they, they just know that it's, it's not really going to, uh, you know, it's not going to fly for, for Boris Johnson politically that he will accept a, an overt role for the European Court of Justice Right in but, the UK in 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 the, this future relationship. But in exchange for that compromise on the role of the ECJ, is there a, a compromise that has to be acknowledged on the UK side of trade access to the European Union? Because during the week there was warnings of inevitable change, no matter what the outcome of the trade talks by Michel Barnier. So are we being prepared for a less than open trade arrangement? as a result of a compromise on the role of the ECJ? Yes, I think by and large, that's that's how things are looking. I mean, the ECJ comes into play in police and judicial cooperation. So the UK wants to have access to a range of databases uh, that are EU databases or are databases that are run by a significant number of, of EU countries and that have a, a, an organic link uh, to European law. These things like DNA and passenger name DNA, records for airlines. And... Ex- exactly, yeah. And and uh, fingerprint databases and, uh, you know, license plate databases and so on. Now, at the moment, if you're, if you're a member state, if you are a, a prosecutor or a police officer within a member state, and you're trying to chase a, a villain uh, and you think they may have gone to Belgium or Bulgaria or wherever, you can actually reach in to the Bulgarian databases and see what you can find. You can do that automatically through the level of cooperation that exists at police and judicial level. Um, now, the reason that you can do that is because there are all sorts of safeguards and checks and balances that all EU member states have signed up to, including the overall protection of uh, fundamental rights that is guaranteed by the European Court of Justice as the final arbiter. Now, Michel Barnier has said this publicly and uh, privately that if the UK wants to have access to these databases to continue that level of police and judicial cooperation, then it cuts across the fundamental rights of EU citizens, especially when you talk about DNA. You know, if, you, if your DNA is on a database somewhere, suddenly it's being accessed by 
a country that's no longer in the EU, you know, you might uh, feel aggrieved at that. You might want to have some kind of legal protections uh, that would effectively safeguard your rights as an EU citizen. Now, if, if the UK persists in saying absolutely not in any police and judicial cooperation that we agree with the EU in future, the ECJ cannot have any role whatsoever. Well, then you get into a sliding scale of access. The more they resist the ECJ's remit in something like police and judicial cooperation, then the more constraints there will be on the UK in being able to access these databases. And they're very valuable. And, you know, every year, um, you know, the, the, the UK would have used the European arrest warrant um, and would have used access to uh, databases, even databases that they're not necessarily uh, or naturally uh, entitled to use, such as the Schengen area. Uh, database, the so-called uh, SIS2, Schengen Information System database. Uh, the EU basically allowed the UK to use that out of the goodness of their hearts, um, even though the UK was not in Schengen. How does um, it work the other way around? If the uh, post-Brexit, if European police forces want to use, have access to UK d- databases, you know, does the writ of the UK Supreme Court run and has, is there reciprocity in that understanding? Well, there would have to be reciprocity um, and I, I'm sure the UK, or rather the EU, would be willing to sign up to that so long as the ECJ remit was there to protect EU citizens that might be subject to a search through a, through a database in another EU member state. Right. Um, but but the problem for the UK now is if they decide that absolutely not, there's, there can't be any rule for the ECJ, then they're going to have to, to settle for... A, a much lower form of access, uh, even to the extent that they're just relying on conventional international agreements on, on judicial and police cooperation. And of course, they're going to be a lot uh, of a lot lower standard uh, and access uh, th- than what is enjoyed at EU level. And that's going to apply across the board. That's going to apply on the level playing field, um, on state aid uh, and other areas where Ultimately, the UK has to decide what the trade-off is going to be. Now, I'd kind of repeat the point again that the EU appears now that it is going to compromise on uh, the ECJ, that it, it, it accepts that politically it's just going to be impossible for the UK to sign up to the oversight or the tyranny or whatever way you want to put it of having the ECJ somehow involved in British law and somehow subjecting the British government uh, to its remit in the future. But from a negotiating point of view, there has to be consequences for for the UK's non-acceptance of that. Otherwise, it flows from that that none of the EU's red lines appear to be all of that hard or red. Well, yeah, again, the, the, the way it will fall is that the more the UK insists on not about having some kind of rule for the ECJ, then the less access they will they will get. Um, but it, it gets a bit more complicated than that because, for example, <laughs> if if, you, if it hasn't been complicated enough, uh, but for example, on state aid, right? You know, this of course is has been a very difficult issue for both sides, and we we've talked about this before in the podcast. You know, that that is really at the heart of this idea that the EU doesn't want to be undercut 
by um, by British companies who right, are well, getting give, bailed give us, out. Give, give us an example there of, of a particular company. This this is this will be familiar to people. Um, the Nissan plant in Sunderland, of course, a huge employer in the northeast of England. Uh, it has famously uh, been given assurances way back to Theresa May's time that if the UK left the single market and the customs union, they'd be looked after. Um, in May, Nissan closed a factory in Barcelona with the loss of 3,000 jobs. Now, you can imagine how difficult it would be in the relationship between both sides in the future if suddenly the plant in Sunderland got an injection of cash to keep workers there, to keep the plant open, and yet the Spanish government was not allowed to do that under uh, EU state aid rules. That's the kind of um, flare-up that the EU is worried about, and that could happen across the board. Um, now, the thing is, the problem for the for the EU is is they're saying, well, okay, if, if you absolutely can't have the ECJ involved in the state aid system that we agree between ourselves into the future, then we need to know what your state aid regime is going to be, because, of course, the state aid regime in the UK has been governed by EU law. They're going to ditch that at the end of the year. What are they putting in place? And the problem is that the, the UK hasn't explained publicly what it's putting in place. The only hint that we have, interestingly, was a document that was circulated during the general election last year by the Conservative Party, where they said that Britain would set up a state aid system that responded to EU, to UK needs that was not based on EU law or treaties and where the UK could move quickly to protect British jobs. Now, that is going to raise numerous alarm bells in uh, EU member states because that's exactly the kind of thing that they want to avoid. Um, now, th that same document did say, like, we're not just going to bail out failing companies, but still there's enough ambiguity there to, to worry negotiators on the EU side. One of the reasons why it may well be that the UK hasn't spelled out its state aid policy is because it's not yet clear that once EU rules on state aid go out the window, uh, what happens uh, from a devolution point of view, uh, you know, when the UK was a member, all of the regions of the UK were governed by the same set of rules on state aid. In other words, EU rules. It's not clear if that's going to be the case after Britain leaves. Does Scotland have uh, its own discretion on state aid? State aid can be very subtle. You can you can have um, somewhat clever trade barriers on labelling or something uh, that might benefit Scottish suppliers over English suppliers. And, you know, it's one thing for... Uh, Scotland to be told by the by Brussels what to do. Uh, it might be another thing for a Scottish uh, Nationalist Party government uh, to be told by Westminster what they can and can't do. Um, so, so these are some of the things that might be holding up Britain's clarity on what its state aid regime is going to be. And until the EU have that, then this is going to be a real problem in the negotiations. Right. And a, a final point to... to <laughs> <laughs> to, to to nail home what we started on in this journey of a podcast yeah um you can't suddenly um create a workaround in a couple of paragraphs if you're going to if you're going to make sure that the the treaty governing the future relationship you know cleverly and carefully avoids any reference to the ECJ or the EU EU rules then you can't 
sort of do that in a couple of paragraphs. That could take pages of of legal text uh, that that avoids references to the ECJ or EU law, uh, but that reassures the EU that this is a legally sound, legally robust uh, foundational agreement between both sides that will last the ages and will not mean that there's a dispute every six months over one factory getting bailed out here and there. Okay. Um, and, and that's why you know, the, the, the UK has to kind of nail its colours uh, on this issue before the end of July, because after July, you've got August when nothing happens, then the time it takes to, to construct a legal treaty um, is, is short uh, and they need time to do this. And get approved and get it translated into all of the languages it needs to be translated into, etc., etc. But if it is to happen before July and there is a tight time frame on it, are, are we facing down the tracks of a very bare bones deal and then that there will have to be further rolling negotiations over the years to come? Well, I certainly think that the EU is, is not going to to let those four big stumbling blocks just kind of drift Um my feeling is that unless the UK decides what it wants by the end of July, um, or at least really early September at the latest, unless they decide what they want to do with state aid and fisheries and the, the governance issue uh, and police and judicial cooperation, um, then there's not really going to be an agreement. Like I don't think the EU is going to simply put those aside uh, and say, well, we'll deal with those next year and we'll just have a free trade agreement uh, in, in between. The free trade agreement and goods and services is all tied up with the level playing field and state aid. You can't really decouple those things. So my impression is that if the UK doesn't um, decide what the trade-offs are going to be, and you know that also means that the UK will have to, that Boris Johnson will have to spell out to his cabinet and to the wider uh, Brexit constituency, um, you know, what these trade-offs are going to be uh, and to the business community because, you know, if, if they are insisting on no role for the ECJ at all and, you know, a very light-touch level playing field uh, arrangement, then the access, there's going to be a lot more friction, shall we say, in, in trade between Britain and uh, Europe. And right. he'll have to explain that to the business community and, of course, all those people who voted for the for the Conservatives in, in the northeast of England. Right. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, also said of the European Parliament during the week that we should also prepare for the possibility of a no-deal scenario. So people, are, I suppose, are managing uh, expectations at all levels and in all institutions uh, in the European Union, Council, Parliament and in the Commission with uh, Michel Barnier's remarks during the week. In terms of the money, Tony, we have talked before about the 750, on a, on a different podcast, the 750 billion coronavirus recovery fund on the pandemic podcast. One of the things that Ireland was concerned about as to whether or not future threats would be built into how grants would be or loans would be distributed from this recovery fund. We had Charles Michel talking earlier today on Friday as we record this, that the unforeseen consequences of Brexit would result in a €5 billion Euro recovery fund or Brexit fund that he would be bringing to the council in advance of next week. Yes, the €750 billion Euro recovery fund for the, the pandemic has been on the table now for a few weeks, uh, $250 billion in loans and $500 billion in grants for the, the worst affected areas or countries or sectors. And 
yeah, next week, EU leaders will come to Brussels for the first time in person since the pandemic to try and crunch out an agreement uh, on this fund because there's still deep divisions on you know, how much should be loans, how much should be grants, what conditionality should be attached, should there be a reform program that you have to fulfill in order to qualify for this money. Uh, a, a recent uh, issue has emerged in terms of the rule of law. Why should Poland and Hungary get a whole chunk of cash if they're constantly, uh, allegedly trampling over EU values when it comes to LGBT or rule of law or media freedom or judicial independence? All of these issues are in the pot getting thrashed about. Um, the the other big thing I think we talked about this last week was the way the money is going to be distributed. The European Commission has what's called an allocation key, which works out how much each country should get of this fund. And the Irish government has been clearly unhappy that they would only get three billion out of the 750 billion. Um, and that's because we are now a, a net contributor and because we had more fiscal space to deal with the pandemic than uh, a country like Spain or Italy or perhaps Portugal. Um, so the Irish government has been pushing for uh, a reappraisal of the allocation key, of the methodology being used by the Commission to work out who gets what. Um, but they've also been saying, look, if we're talking about completely rehauling or, or revamping and overhauling the European economy from scratch, almost with this huge bazooka of money, then what about Brexit? You know, that's going to be an external asymmetric shock that Ireland is going to suffer more than any other country. Mm. Uh, and Belgium and the Netherlands uh, as well has been saying, have been saying, actually, that's true. Um, so now today, we've for the first time, we've heard uh, Charles Michel, the uh, European Council president, saying he's proposing a reserve fund of five billion uh, for countries that are most affected by Brexit. And you can see that as kind of code for, well, countries like Ireland and Belgium. So that, that could mean... Could I ask a cynical by, question at this point hmm. that the frugal four at the Netherlands is amongst them the countries that are perceived as not being amenable to this recovery fund being distributed in, in grants rather than loans. If there was a five billion Brexit contingency fund built into this, could it sweeten the pill for the Netherlands to sell it to a domestic audience or is that just not part of the thinking? I think it could. Um, I mean, the, the, the Netherlands have raised quite a number of issues and one of them is the allocation key, the, the way that the money is, is worked out country by country. Um, and so this could be something that would uh, sweeten the pill a bit for the Netherlands. But I think the Netherlands are, in general, more concerned about the, the quid pro quo if you know the, the thing obviously loans are loans you have to pay them back grants are free money and if this free money is going to be going to uh, Spain Italy France Portugal the Netherlands are saying well you you can't just you know give it out willy-nilly you have to make sure that you know a similar catastrophic effect by a pandemic won't happen again in the future that this money will go to make sure that health systems are properly run, that there's proper capacity within these countries to, right. um, you know, to, uh, to to meet the challenge of, a, of another pandemic or another wave or whatever. Um, and there are other considerations as well. Do you throw this money at con countries which just have 
dirty industries that are going to be phased out anyway. Uh, and that's why there's a big kind of green component to, to this fund as well. This money has to be spent on sustainable uh, green uh, industries and also the whole digitalization question, which um, we can get into as well, if you like. That's going to be a bit of an awkward um, <laughs> issue for right. The, the, we, we, new, the new president of the Eurogroup won Pascal Donoghue. Well, we'll we get to Pascal Donoghue in a moment, but that just, just just to kind of close off this particular section, that five billion fund, that's that's to be signed off on or not. Is it next week at a summit? Yeah, it's, it's got to be signed off next week at a summit. So what, what's been happening is that Charles Michel has been holding bilateral conversations with all of the EU leaders on this recovery fund and the the seven-year EU budget, which kind of goes hand in hand, um, and 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 as a result of all those conversations, this is the latest compromise that that he's come up with. Um, so it deals with all the issues we've been discussing. Um, it deals with the whole question of conditionality. There's a structure in there which uh, is called uh, the European Semester. Uh, uh, there's a thing called country by country recommendations. These are all. Um, kind of mechanisms that were created out of the debris of the Eurozone crisis, um, which are ways for countries to make sure that they're much more robust, they're, there's uh, you know, a greater level of um, you know, fiscal prudence and resilience when it comes to their banking sector, when it comes to their, uh, their employment sector, when it comes to training, a whole range of you know, things that make up a country's economy. Uh, and, you know, these, you know, especially for Ireland, when, when we were in the bailout program, we had to adhere very strictly to a program of austerity, as everyone knows, but also, you know, fixing things in our economy, which, uh, according to the European Commission uh, and and the, the Eurogroup, uh, were deleterious to, to the yeah. country not being able to uh, avoid a bailout and the whole banking sector and everything. So, yeah, the cost so we're of getting legal services was one of those things that exactly yeah, was yeah, pushed those, out yeah. on the long finger. Yeah. It managed to escape. Yeah. There were an awful lot of other things dealt with, but the uh, the, Indeed, the, the legal yeah. industry in Ireland managed to to yeah. to, 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 to delay that. Plus that change. Yeah, we we leave Pascal Donoghue just to the end. We'll go. Just want to go to to London and Sean isn't with us this week because Sean as as. Anyone is entitled. He's on his annual leave. So uh, letters that have leaked out from the UK cabinet cause for alarm, possibly, on that. Yeah, so this was a letter by Liz Truss, the Trade Secretary, to both Michael Gove, the uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and who's a, a key figure in the, the Brexit sphere. Uh, he's also helping to implement the withdrawal agreement. Um, and Rishi Shunak, the uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically warning that the UK government's plans for what happens on the 1st of January uh, could be illegal under uh, the WTO, could give rise to smuggling and all sorts of other problems. The re- what she's identifying there is, is this promise by London that on the 1st of January, they would take a very light touch approach at the ports. They wouldn't impose... Um, controls immediately uh, on goods coming in uh, to the UK uh, because of the pandemic. They're saying that this gives companies six months to really prepare um, for, uh, for, for these changes. Um, of course, the EU came out fairly quickly and said, well, that's up to you, but we are going to be applying the full panoply of checks and controls on our side of the fence in Calais and other 
uh, European ports. Now, she's saying that this uh, arrangement uh, could be illegal under um, World Trade Organization rules because that would essentially mean that uh, goods coming in from the EU might come in kind of tariff-free because you're not really applying the checks and controls at the ports. And that means that that the EU is getting preferential treatment uh, compared to other parts of the world and this would be illegal under WTO rules and there could be a legal challenge by another uh, country. Um, she was also saying this could lead to smuggling, uh, people smuggling goods in from the EU into the UK because they were uh, somehow tariff-free. But uh, a third complaint that she made, which raised quite a few eyebrows, was that um, you know, in this scenario at the beginning of next year, goods coming into Northern Ireland would have the full EU tariff applied um, and that this would mean that Northern Ireland was not really being treated as part of the UK's customs territory and this would alienate unionists and uh, wasn't that, that was not a good thing. Um, now, this third element was actually quite puzzling to people because, first of all, yes, of course, Northern Ireland is in the UK's customs territory, but it's applying the EU's customs code and single market rules. That's the whole point and nature of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, secondly, uh, she was saying that this would this would happen if the systems to make the protocol work uh, weren't ready on time. Um, and that the, if they weren't ready on time, then the default would be that EU tariffs would be applied on everything coming in to Northern Ireland. Um, now, it, it's quite a strange thing to say because the the mantra from the UK government, from Michael Gove and from Boris Johnson, has been uh, that those systems will be in place on time, that they are implementing the withdrawal agreement, including the Northern Ireland Protocol. They are putting all of those systems in place and everything will be ready by the end of the year. That's been the mantra. They're going to abide by their international obligations. Suddenly, Liz Truss, who's a member of the cabinet, is coming along and saying, uh, actually, those systems aren't going to be ready. And as a result, that means Northern Ireland will be treated differently uh, from the rest of the UK. Uh, and that that has been seen by some officials I've spoken to as a, a kind of an almost mischievous intervention by Liz Truss um, that has more to do with with tensions within the cabinet in general uh, and you know her credentials as as a, as a true blue true blue uh, member of the the Brexit uh, community. Right. Finally, then today to uh, Pascal Donoghue, there was uh, Nadia Calvino, uh, Spain's finance minister, was up for the job of president of the Eurogroup. I think last week there was talk that possibly the smart money was on her. Pascal Donoghue had a chance at a compromise, being a compromise candidate, as long as he could beat Pierre Gramegna of Luxembourg through the first round of voting amongst the 19 members who were voting in it. So then it switched this week to the smart money being on Pascal Donoghue and ultimately he came out with a big prize. What happened? Yeah, so uh, it was yesterday, Thursday, that the election took place for the, you know, the Eurogroup. Mario Centeno was had stepped aside because he's becoming the governor of the Portuguese uh, Central Bank. And the three candidates, as you say, were Nadia Calvino from Spain, Pascal Donoghue and Pierre Gramegna, the Luxembourg finance minister, who was actually making his second attempt to be uh, president of the Eurogroup. So that meant people felt that he probably didn't have much of a chance and that uh, the votes that he got in the first round, if nobody got 
10 votes in the first round, which was kind of expected, then his votes would go to Pascal Donoghue and his campaign pledged to be a bridge builder between north and south in the in, in the Eurozone uh, would get him over the line against Nadia Calvino, who has been uh, okay, on the one hand, you know, she's she's a Spanish finance minister. They the Spanish government is in the centre left. But she was backed by Germany, position. wasn't she? She had She was backed by Germany, yeah. She was backed by the the big countries, uh, in fact, um partly because the the incumbent uh, is from the socialist uh, group in in Portugal and part of the socialist family in, in Europe, and they tend to want to hold on to uh, the top jobs that they get. Pascal Donoghue, of course, is from the centre-right, the European People's Party. The European People's Party came out in support of Pascal Donoghue uh, a couple of weeks ago, 10 days ago. Angela Merkel, of course, is in the EPP, but uh, her finance minister is a socialist. He's from the Social Democrats. So that, that means that the German vote was going to go to the, the Spanish candidate. Um, so the vote under, unfolded yesterday. It was, it was late getting underway, partly, I think, due to uh, technical troubles because it was uh, a video conference again. Um, and both all three candidates made their pitches and the vote got underway. But after 20 minutes or so, it, it was weirdly not clear um, whether one of the candidates had pulled out. Um, the, none of them got the 10 votes that was needed to win in the first round. Uh, so it may have been that Pascal Donoghue and Pierre Gramegna were possibly tied, uh, or Pascal Donoghue may have been slightly ahead. Um, it's, it's not clear because these the results are kept um, as, a, as a close secret. But in any event, after a while, it emerged that Pierre Gramegna did pull out so then you have a straightforward runoff between Pascal Donoghue and Nadia Calvino, the uh, Spanish finance minister. And uh, just before uh, seven o'clock Irish time, Mario Centeno tweeted that uh, the new president of the Eurogroup was indeed Pascal Donoghue. He had beaten his Spanish rival uh, and won the, the top job, uh, which was you know quite a considerable achievement given that all of the big countries were supporting the Spanish candidate. But in the end, it's one country, one vote. Pascal seemed to have got the votes of northern, Baltic, Nordic countries. Um, his promise of being a bridge builder seemed to have won the day. But interestingly, today, Friday, Nadia Calvino has complained that she was beaten by one vote and that she'd been promised that vote by an unnamed uh, Eurozone finance minister, Right. who had betrayed her in the, <laughs> in the vital hour, uh, and she would have won uh, the prize had that not happened. Um, right. Well, we, welcome to we Irish-style politics. One thinks of Bertie Ahern showing Albert Reynolds the vote. The paper, uh, yes. Uh, that, that, he was, exactly. that he was going yeah. to vote for him, and at that moment, yeah. Albert Reynolds yeah, people let, people let you down at the last minute. They do. They do. So what does but, it mean uh, from a Brexit angle? He, he got it, and he's a bridge builder, and it's sort of... Pascal Donoghue is in with the Hansi addicts, but Ireland is a former programme country, so it can empathise at least with countries that have economic difficulties. But having that role being occupied by the Irish finance minister in terms of its political advantage to Ireland, if any, what is it? It's, it's hard to say. Uh, it's certainly in terms of prestige, this, is a, a, this was a big night for Ireland. We haven't held a very major institutional um, chairmanship or, or presidency 
on you know ever since Pat Cox was president of the European uh, Parliament. Now, of course, we have very key people in uh, key places, like uh, Emily O'Reilly is the EU ombudsman. She's she's now in her second term. Uh, Emer Cook, I think it is, who an Irish woman who became head of the European uh, Medical Authority. Um, but to get the head of the eurozone is is quite a plum job, uh, and it does reflect a narrative of the program country that came good that is now a net contributor to the EU budget. Um, the problem for Pascal Donoghue is that uh, is, is really taxation, um, and this links us to nicely to Brexit. You know, one of the um, areas of the uh, being able to repay the COVID-19 recovery fund uh, is a digital tax, a tax on big uh, high-tech multinationals uh, that would allow the EU over time, over a 30-year period, to pay back some of this 750 billion euro that they've, they're going to pull together. Um, and that means that the digital tax, which had been kind of moribund at EU level, Ireland and a number of other countries had rejected it, uh, saying that that issue was better dealt with at OECD level. Um, it's now really back in the frame. And Charles Michel today, when he announced uh, the latest draft of the recovery fund, said a digital tax is going to be uh, in the mix somewhere. And he proposed that it should come into effect at the end of 2021, which is just around the corner. Um, so this, again, is going to put some awkward pressure on Pascal Donoghue as the honest broker of the Eurozone. Of course, the recovery fund is not... During the week here, Martin Shannon, the head of the IDA, was talking about the outlook for foreign direct investment, of which the multinational tech sector is a big part because of all of the companies that are headquartered in Ireland, said the outlook was going to be challenging in the coming period. So that'll probably focus Pascal Donoghue's mind, both in his job at home and also uh, in whatever politicking he's doing as president of the Eurogroup. Absolutely, yeah. So, So, I mean, he, again important to point out that the recovery fund is not restricted to the eurozone it's uh, it's an eu-wide um, venture um, but as he has said himself you know th- there is a huge uh, challenge to get consensus from all member states on this and if you can get consensus working through the offices of the eurozone and the eurogroup then you're halfway there or two-thirds of the way there but it's, it is going to be awkward for Pascal Donoghue to be uh, trying to manoeuvre and cajole different countries in a certain direction when Ireland is still implacably opposed to a, a digital tax, which is, you know, it, you would have to say, is proving to be a lot more attractive to governments and citizens who feel that the international tech sector has allegedly got away with uh, too much for too long. Um, and, you know, next week we're going to see the Apple case. The Apple judgment is going to come out in the European Court of Justice in in the general court in Luxembourg. Might upset um, the that's Apple That's going to be a, a big... Uh, yeah, that'll upset the Apple card. <laughs> but again, it'll draw attention to this whole question of, uh, you know, high-tech global multinationals. Um, and and uh, yeah, so we, we'll uh, obviously be talking about that next week. All right. OK. Well, all eyes anyway for as we conclude this episode on the, the 20th of July and the appropriate plotting and negotiation that has to go into that. So anyway, from me, Colm O'Mungoin, from a bedroom in Kildare, that's my lot for this week. And from me, Tony Connolly, uh, RT's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks as always for listening.